0: Thank you for joining us today. We'll be continuing our study of the book of Matthew. We'll continue our study of the last week before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah by the Jews. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 22, we'll begin our lesson. And why don't I open us in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this group, and we thank you for this opportunity for us to gather together and study your word as we continue our study of Matthew. Help us to not only gain knowledge, but also help us to apply what we learn in our lives. That's why we gather. Father, we all are here because we want to have a closer relationship with you, and we want to live our lives out in the way that you want us to do that. And I ask this morning, Father, that you speak through me through the lesson and you speak through anybody else that speaks up to contribute to our discussion so that we can all learn from one another and don't let any of us take anyone else astray through this process. We truly want to understand your word and what you're trying to communicate to us through the Bible. And we pray all this in your son Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 22. And when we left off last time, we had concluded studying two of the parables that Jesus was teaching about as he was addressing the religious leaders. And basically, those parables, as we discussed through that, Jesus was indicating that the Jews had really mismanaged God's plan, and they had rebelled against God, and they had rejected God, and some of them had killed the prophets and they were gonna face judgment as a result of their actions. But Jesus was giving an indication that he was going to choose a different vessel now going forward to help build his kingdom. And so he's going to now give a third parable. It's too bad that we have a chapter break right here, the way this was put together, because remember originally when the Bible was put together, it didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers. And what we're going to pick up with this morning just flows directly from the previous two parables. So this is a third parable, third and final in the set of three parables that Jesus is teaching. This parable, as we will see, it differs from the preceding parable in that in the preceding parable, there Israel had rejected their calling and their responsibility to be a steward and a shepherd to the rest of the world to point them to God. And here, in this parable, what we'll see as we go through it, we're going to see that Jesus also says they also reject the offer to be part of the kingdom as it's being presented to them. They deliberately decide that they want to be disinherited, as we'll see. So let's begin chapter 22 and Matthew, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. All right, let me set this up. So when you think of the king, this is really referring to God the Father, and he's going to give this wedding feast for his son, meaning Jesus Christ. So let's keep reading on. Verse three, and he being the king sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And so this invitation goes out from the slaves, meaning his prophets, could be even referring to John the Baptist, to people who were calling people to the wedding feast. And it might be that this first group, it's believed to be the nation of Israel. And they were unwilling to come. They were inviting, but they were rebelling against this invitation to put their faith in Jesus. They wanted to go their own way. Verse 4, again, He, being the king, sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. So if you think about it, it's very unusual. A king in those days would be so patient to go back out and then invite them a second time. Very few kings then would give anybody a second chance when somebody didn't show up. This shows God's patience with the nation of Israel. Even though they initially rejected the invitation, he sends them out again to go invite them. And he's saying, please come honor my son. And it's a responsibility and a blessing, but please come to the feast. And the invitation is being given to that generation of Israel to enter the kingdom. The feast represents this future union of the bridegroom, being Jesus, and his redeemed people, which is the bride, and having this invitation to come and have salvation and participate in God's kingdom. But in order to do that, you have to place your faith in Jesus. And most of the Jews, they thought that they were going to inherit the kingdom just because they had the blood of Abraham. They thought that's all they needed, and they were going to do it their way. And you can see they're being invited to place their faith in the Son and become part of the wedding feast, but they refuse to do it. In the second invitation, he even tries to entice them with food. Let's see how they respond. And we'll see there's two groups that are explained in the response. The first group is in verse five, but they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. So the first group just responded with apathy. They just said, I'm not really interested. I've got other things I've got to do. I have other interests. I'm not going to go to the wedding feast. Verse six talks about the second group and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So the second group responded with aggression, and we know eventually the Jews kill not only the prophets that preceded Jesus, like John the Baptist and and other prophets, but they're going to kill Jesus as well. So we see these two responses. Some had other things they needed to do, and some opposed him with aggression. And God isn't pleased with either one of these responses. Both of them rejected his offer of redemption, of forgiveness, of salvation, and reward. So let's see how the king responds to this. Verse 7. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So the Jews hearing this, they'd have been thinking, who would do this to a king? You know, they're listening to this story. It's like, when you're invited twice by the king, who would treat a king and his representatives like this? And when they hear that this is what now the king's response is, they're probably thinking, well, yeah, of course that's what would happen if somebody rejected a king like that. And when you look at it, it says that he set their city on fire. This is actually prophecy that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed as they were in A.D. 70 by the Romans. So here's some prophecy, even in this parable, that this is what's going to happen. So now let's see what the king does. Verse 8, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They're not worthy because they rejected the invitation. They really hadn't even been worthy to receive an invitation, but it was through God's grace that he extended this invitation to them to begin with. But they weren't interested. They didn't think they needed it. They didn't want to go. They had other things to do. And some even reacted with hostility. So the king says in verse 9, Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So now the wedding feast is being postponed. And actually it's being postponed to the second coming of Jesus. The Jews thought they were too good to be bothered. And they wanted to do it their own way. They didn't need the invitation. They rejected the invitation of God. And yet God is saying, look, you have got to accept this invitation. The only way you're going to get into the kingdom is by placing your faith in my son and accepting this invitation that God's extending by grace. That's the only way you're getting into the wedding feast and actually into the kingdom. So verse 10... And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So the king treated sinners, good people, Jews, Gentiles, it didn't matter. They were all invited. All were invited, no matter how good or bad that they had been. They all were given the invitation, but they had to accept the invitation. Morally good doesn't mean that you're worthy to be invited. Yet everyone who was invited, they are deemed worthy by accepting the invitation. That's how they become worthy of being accepted into the kingdom. So now let's see what happens. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Now, there's some commentators that actually say that the king had provided wedding clothes to the guest and he just decided he didn't need it. He wore less than the best that was available to him. That's not in here, but that was a custom back then, apparently. In any event, this one guy shows up and he doesn't even come dressed in a respectful way to respect the king and the king's son. He wanted to do it his own way. He was dependent only on himself. And what's interesting is, look, when the king says to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? His response is he was speechless because he really couldn't say anything. Either clothes were available to him That he could have put on and he chose not to but in any event he came in a way that he was not showing respect to the king perhaps the garment could represent the righteousness of jesus so this is perhaps teaching that this person showed up but yet showed up on his own terms and actually refused jesus christ's sacrifice for our sins rejected god and didn't want to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, being the garments, to come into the wedding feast. He wanted to come on his own terms, and basically thought he was good enough. He didn't need to do anything to respect the king. Let's see how the king responds. Verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. So many people hear the gospel, but few accept the invitation. They refuse to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They want to do it their own way. This parable, I think, is clearly teaching that you can't get there on your own. While God extends an invitation to us and he's elected us, there is some element here where we've got to respond in the appropriate manner. So we have this tension, but we've got to respond. If you refuse to accept the invitation that God extends to us by grace and acknowledge that we're not worthy, we're sinners, but for God's grace and this invitation, this gift, free gift that he offers us, we're not going to get in. And of course, this would just really infuriate the religious leaders and the Jews because they think, well, I'm in just because I've got Abraham's blood. Verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him, being Jesus, in what he said, because they're really irritated now. They truly want to get rid of this guy. There are many people who just want to earn salvation on their own terms. It's really our response to this invitation that is what gets us into the kingdom. Verse 16. So this is the group of Pharisees, religious leaders, the folks who really supposedly are the ones that have learned the scriptures. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Okay, let me tell you who these people are. Let me set this up first. Uh, We've talked about this before, but just to refresh your memory. Remember, the Pharisees are religious leaders. One of the things they did is they opposed Roman rule in Israel. They couldn't stand having the Romans in authority over them. They were looking for a conquering king to come and destroy the Romans so that they would be in power again. The Herodians... This is a political party, basically, that supported Roman rule through Herod. So you've got that group. And they didn't really like the Pharisees. They didn't like each other, these two groups. And we've got the third group that we've talked about, and we're going to talk about further even today. The Sadducees are another group of religious leaders. They have some different views than the Pharisees, but they're also part of the Sanhedrin Council. And they really didn't get along with the Pharisees either. You can think of the Sadducees as more of the aristocratic type, maybe more wealthy religious leaders, and the Pharisees primarily were like more of the common man. But they definitely had different views, and I'm going to get into some of that in a minute. What we're going to see is even though we have these three groups that really don't get along, they're all going to come together to crucify Jesus. Of course, they all knew that Herod would want to kill anyone who was saying they were king. So they're trying to trap Jesus here in these next couple of little questions they ask him. So let's watch what happens. Verse 16 They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. First of all, what they're saying here is all truthful, they're all true statements. But they didn't believe it. They're just using hypothetical flattery, really, to try to trap Jesus. The truth is, they really believe that Jesus is a heretic. And they're trying to set a trap for him. And they're calling him teacher. It sounds like they're looking up to him, but they're not at all. They're trying to trap him. So here comes the trap they try to set. Verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? First of all, all the Jewish people hated the taxes that Caesar put on them. That was another thing that just really irritated them. And so they hated this tax. They're trying to trap Jesus here because if Jesus said yes, then Jesus is showing partiality to the Herodians and to Rome. Herodians supported Rome. And so they knew that that would then upset any of Jesus' followers who were Jewish because they hated the tax. And so they're trying to get him in a place where he can't give the right answer. And if he said yes, the Pharisees could then discredit him for sympathizing with Rome. If he said no, then the Herodians could accuse him of treason and arrest him under Roman law. So you can see they're trying to set this trap that either way, They think Jesus answers. They've got him. And they're just totally focused on trying to get rid of Jesus now. They're trying to get Jesus to essentially condemn himself. So let's see how Jesus answers. Verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? So Jesus is calling them out. He knew they weren't really looking for the truth. They just wanted to trap him. So verse 19. He says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. Remember, that coin represented a day's wages. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness in inscription is this? As he's looking at the coin. And the Jews thought it violated God's law to put your image on a coin. So they thought that was a problem, that Caesar's likeness would be on this coin. It was like you were making yourself to be a god. So they're trying to trap Jesus. Surely Jesus would denounce Caesar as a false god. So verse 21, they say to him, Caesar's. It's Caesar's image that's on the coin. Then Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So he's saying that there's two positions that are not in conflict, that both God and the civil government are there. They're valid authorities. God has put the civil government in place and give to each what they are due. There's no conflict here. Give to God what is God's and give to Caesar the tax that he places on you. We're commanded to do that and we're commanded. It's our duty and our obligation to pay our taxes even to corrupt authorities, even to corrupt authorities who Jesus knows want to kill him. We're being told right here, this is our obligation to do this. In fact, hold your place right here. Flip over to Romans 13. Let me show you something. We've looked at this before, but while we're here, particularly given our culture, where we are right now with everything that's going on and just the way this country is so divided. Chapter 13 in Romans verse 1, it says, "...let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities." For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So that's saying that God is in control. He places anybody who is in authority, doesn't matter what country, they are there, doesn't matter the outcome of any election, that God has placed whoever it is there, and we are to submit to the governing authorities. That's what we are called to do, unless it is in direct conflict with something in Scripture. And if you skip down to verse five, wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So I just wanted to touch on that, given the divisiveness we see in our culture today. You don't see anywhere in the Bible where you see people out revolting against the authority. We are to pray for our leaders, and we are to be in subjection to them. They are placed there, even the bad ones. Look at the history of Israel. They had good leaders. They had bad leaders. God worked through all of them, and they were there because God put them there and gave them that authority. So I just thought I'd touch on that. Maybe we can discuss that a little bit when we open up for discussion. Okay, let me go back over to Matthew. Verse 22. In hearing this, they marveled. and leaving him, they went away. So here Jesus wins again, and the Pharisees leave. Jesus has answered in a way that they weren't able to trap him, so they leave. So now the Sadducees are going to come in. And they think, okay, the Pharisees didn't get him. We can get him. Verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. So let me set this up. Because this is going to be about the resurrection. The Pharisees and Sadducees had different views on life after death. Pharisees believe there's life after death. There's scripture I can point to, Psalm 16. I'm going to give you another one here in a minute. There's plenty of scripture in the Old Testament that points to life after death and resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. And the reason for that is their belief of the Old Testament is that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that's where the authority is because they didn't see any reference in the first five books of the Bible to life after death or resurrection, they viewed that it didn't exist. There is no life after death. They viewed that the rest of the Old Testament, while it had authority, it didn't have the authority of the first five books and was really more like commentary on the first five books of the Bible. Okay? So the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection or life after death. So they're going to try to use this in a way to trap Jesus. By the way, if you wonder what Pentateuch means, again, that's what they call the first five books of the Bible. Penta means five and tuke means scrolls. So remember the books of the Bible were written on scrolls. So it just means five scrolls. thought you might want to know that. Okay, so let's see how they're going to try to trap Jesus. They came to him and questioned him, verse 24, saying, Teacher, Moses said, again, referring to the Pentateuch, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. They're referring to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. You can go look at that later if you want to. That's what they're quoting from. What this set up was, it was a way, you remember the way the inheritance laws worked. The first son is really what the line goes through. And so if the first brother died without a son, then the next brother could marry the wife and then have a son in order to continue that line. That's what they're setting up this question with. Verse 25, Now there were seven brothers with us, And the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. So, remember, the Sadducees don't even believe in life after death. So, they assume that there's no answer because the resurrection is just a myth. That's what they're assuming. By the way, they didn't believe in angels either. That's another difference that they had. Verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God, meaning the power of God about life after death or God's power to resurrect us. Verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So this is new revelation. It's never been mentioned in the Old Testament Scripture before, but there's no need for marriage in heaven. There's no reproduction in heaven, so there's no need for marriage. Jesus marries the church, meaning all of us as believers, and so there won't be marriage. And he mentions angels. Angels don't marry. They don't produce offspring. And so he says, we'll be like angels. We won't become angels, but he's saying it's similar to that. In other words, we're not going to be reproducing in heaven. Verse 31, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So here Jesus is quoting Exodus 3, verse 6. By the way, Exodus is in the Pentateuch, okay? And he's saying, okay, you Sadducees, you only place authority on the Pentateuch. So I'm reading out of it, out of the book of Exodus. And in verse 3, 6, this is what it says. And by the way, when God spoke this to Moses, when God said this to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all physically dead. But what God was saying to Moses is that they're alive spiritually and they are with God. And this is in their Old Testament Pentateuch. So there is a reference to resurrection. How could they be spiritually alive with God if there wasn't a resurrection? That's what Jesus is saying to them. Verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The problem is the Sadducees didn't believe that God could raise people and that there could be a resurrection. And so Jesus essentially turned their trap into their embarrassment because they're supposed to be experts in the scripture, and he's pointing out where they're wrong. So now the Sadducees have failed, all right? First the Pharisees failed. Now the Sadducees came in. They failed the trapping. Okay, now the Pharisees are going to come back. It's like, okay, now we're up. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had put the Sadducees to silence, okay, (laughs) they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question, testing him. And he asked, teacher, again, this faking respect of Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? All right, let me set this up for you the Pharisees had totally complicated the law, and we've talked about this before, but they had added and turned the law into something like 365 negative things that you were not to do, and 248 positive things that you had to do, all right? And they spent so much time prioritizing the technicalities of these 365 things and these 248 things, and it was so complicated. But they came up with things that, like, if you did these things, you were righteous, and it was just an outward righteousness. Their hearts never were for God. But they tried to come up with this man-made system where they could feel like they were doing things and made themselves look better in front of everybody else. But their hearts never were with God. So now they're asking Jesus, okay, out of all of these laws and rules and regulations that we put in place, the 365 negative and the 248, which one is the greatest? And by the way, they had also already spent a lot of time and discussion prioritizing all of these, all right? There were some that were viewed as having higher priority than the others. So they're trying to trap him. Verse 37, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So Jesus is now quoting, again from the Pentateuch, from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. And he's basically saying the first is you got to love God with everything you've got, even your heart. you got to love God with your heart from the inside. That is the greatest one. And by the way, this quote right here, this is called the Shema. This is the most quoted scripture in Judaism. In fact, very devout Jews, they recite this every single day. But they just recite it. They don't really feel it in their heart. It's just an outward thing. They feel like, okay, I'm going to recite this, blah, 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 blah. But they aren't even thinking about it. It's not in their heart. And I'm not saying everybody, but for the most part, this is what Jesus has been railing against them about because they haven't given their heart to God. Verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. Verse 39, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus is drawing from Leviticus 19:18 again from the Pentateuch, Jesus is saying these two commandments, you can't separate them. It's impossible to love God without loving people. And the second one is actually harder because it involves people. It's not just, you know, my relationship with God. We have to love others instead of ourselves. And we're called to serve them, everyone. We're to love everyone, love God, love everyone else verse 40 he says on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets so he's saying every Old Testament teaching every command everything that's in the Old Testament remember the New Testament isn't written yet everything is fulfilled when we do these two things verse 41 now while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them a question so now Jesus is going to go on offense And he's basically going to say, if you're wrong about Jesus, then you're wrong about everything. So let's watch what he asked them. Verse 42 He says, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And they answered correctly. The Old Testament was very clear that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And they acknowledge this truth. They acknowledge it. There's many verses. One, if you're taking notes, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. It's very clear that the Messiah would be the son of David. Verse 43. So Jesus says to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Okay, before I read this, he's going to refer to Psalm 110, which David wrote, And when he wrote it, he was being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the words are from God. So these are God's words spoken through David as he wrote Psalm 110. So Jesus is saying, okay, if the Messiah is going to be a son of David, how does David, speaking for God, call him Lord? And this is where he did it from Psalm 110 in verse 44. The Lord, meaning God the Father, said to my Lord, meaning the Messiah, David's descendant, David's son, sit at my right hand until I put thy enemies beneath thy feet. He says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How can David's Messiah and Lord also be his son? He's saying Jesus is a descendant of David. He is a descendant of David. He is fully God and he's fully man. And he was here even when David was here. Jesus is God's son. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So Jesus wins again. They've run all these traps, trying to trap him. They aren't able to trap him. He has silenced them all. So that's it. Remember, where are we? I should have set this up. I mentioned it last time. This is still Wednesday before Passover. So we're quickly approaching the trials and the crucifixion and then followed by death, burial and resurrection of Jesus as we're proceeding through Matthew here. Just to summarize what we read this morning, there is going to be a resurrection for all of us and depending on what decisions you make in this life will then dictate whether you're going to spend eternity with God as part of the bride of Christ, being part of the church. The other thing, and we touched on this a little bit, maybe a couple of times ago, it came up, and I remember somebody had a question, but It's clear there is no marriage in heaven. It's hard to understand that, particularly those of you who have been married for a long time. I mean, I can't even imagine going through this life without my wife. But we're not going to be married. Our focus is going to be on Jesus Christ. I feel certain that I'm going to know, dare, my wife. But our focus is going to be on Jesus Christ. It's also clear from what we read, you can't be in the kingdom if you reject the Son. A lot of people in our culture today believe all roads lead to God. Well, they may all lead to God, but they don't all lead to eternity with God. There is going to be a judgment for everyone. And if you reject the Son, you've chosen your path. You're going to be eternally separated from God. And finally, we are to pay our taxes to the government, obey our leaders, submit to them, and then give to God what He asks of us. Of course, if we're ever asked to do something totally counter to what is written in Scripture, no, I can point to Scripture that says we don't have to be obedient to the government in that case. We're not to complain and moan and talk about our government leaders. God put them there, and to dishonor them is to dishonor what God put in place. So with that, let me open it up for questions, discussion. How do we apply this in our lives today? Hey Larry, I do have a question. Jumping back to Romans 13:3, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it looks like 3 through 5 has a little bit of a social contract, where it says essentially if you do good, you'll receive the approval of the rulers, but if you do evil, you'll incur God's wrath. Is there an implication there if that sort of social contract breaks down, or is the idea that you know there's examples in the Bible of Pharaoh, for example, who was an evil ruler, and obviously the uh, Romans that put Jesus to death? But I'm just curious about that Romans 13:3 through 5. Yeah, I think what it is really talking about is that as Christians, we are to live our life differently from everyone else. And if we're out causing trouble and fighting the governmental authorities, then the government is going to take retribution against us for doing that. Okay? They just are. And when they do that, we're going to be taken off the battlefield. We're not going to be able to continue to help build the kingdom We're not living our lives in a way that God has called us to do, which is submit to the authorities that God has placed above us. We aren't to fight the authorities. Now, it is different if they're asking us to do something. Like, if we were compelled, let's say a law is passed that says, we've got too many people in America, and so if your wife is pregnant, when that baby is born, you got to kill it. Well, that is so counter to what's written in the Bible, I think there, we don't submit to that. So I'm just giving that as an example. To complain about the government authorities, to say they're terrible, to not pay our taxes because we feel like they're using the tax dollars in a way that might even be immoral, that's not for us to deal with. God has placed the authorities there. When they tax us, we're to pay our taxes and move on. They are going to have to answer to God with what they did with their authority that God placed them in. But the Bible says all power comes from God. So those in authority who have power, that comes from God. And it's how they've used it. They're going to have to answer for it. But our role isn't to cause trouble. We are to live our lives in a godly manner. Don't fight the authority that is above us and submit. It's pretty clear that's what it says. Regardless of the outcome of the election, all I'm trying to point out to everyone is... No matter who wins what we are called to do is recognize that who wins god has put them in that authority and just keep your mouth shut quit complaining about it whoever it is and just submit they're not perfect no leader ever has been you're not gonna find it i mean go back to king david look what king david did god calls him a man after his own heart yet look at the sin he had in his life he he killed somebody and he had sex out of marriage and God took his first son from him because of it. Nobody's perfect, but we are to submit to whoever is in authority and pay our taxes, and don't whine and complain about it. It's hard to do. I didn't make the rules. I'm just reading them to you. Larry, I think that's right, and the idea as I sort of hear it and take it in is don't let earthly things be a stumbling block to the Great Commission. Richard Ellis, you may have already listened. I did not listened yet, but today the text message for his message is you know that it's impossible to complain and trust God at the same time? Richard unpacks that thought in today's talk, so very timely. Yeah, I've listened to it. It's good. And talking about podcasts, if you're interested, John MacArthur's series for the last two weeks has been on this topic, submitting to the government. How do we as Christians submit to the government when so many laws are counter to the Bible? So if you're interested in that, Best way to get both of those, by the way, I've mentioned this before, but I'll tell you again, on your phone, go to the App Store, and it's free. It's called the One Place Church app, and when you subscribe to it, no cost, every day you will get different podcasts. You don't get them all. You go on there and you find who you want to listen to. And both Richard Ellis is on there every day, as well as John MacArthur, as well as Chuck Swindoll, a whole bunch of people. It's a great place to go. It's called One Place for that reason. So a little advertisement. This Bible study is not on there. (laughs) So it can't be that. (laughs) Right. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.